Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, all theater lovers, both out and proud and on the DL, and welcome to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theater's most exclusive address, Broadway. This is the first of many series devoted to specific artists that have helped shape Broadway as we know it today, both for better and for worse. It is called A Little Sondheim Music, and it is dedicated to the musicals of one Mr. Stephen Sondheim. I'm your host, Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. And with me is a man who knows theater. He's been to theater. He loves theater. He's uh, critical but kind. He taught me so much, and now I've taught him so much. And more importantly, I have seen quite a few Sondheim shows with him, and he has taken many people along the ride of a specific Sondheim show that we'll be discussing today. Uh, but he's probably probably best known as my father, my daddy, Mr. Peter Koflick. Hi, Boo Boo. How are you? Good evening, son of mine. That might seem like formal to the rest of you guys, but that's actually how he answers the phone to me. <laughs> I occasionally use a nickname, but yes. son of mine is my favorite uh, sobriquet for you. <laughs> I can't I can't ever say sobriquet. I have to say sobriquet because that's how little Edie says it in Grey Gardens. But I wouldn't expect you to remember that. Father, what Sondheim musical are we discussing today? Follies, you know it. Do you know why I asked you to join me for this episode? Uh, I'm not sure, but I think it's because it's one of my all-time favorites and I've seen it about five times, which is uh, excruciating considering that I didn't see the original Broadway production. Yeah, you, why didn't you see the original Broadway production? You were around, or I guess you weren't. Were you were in school? Yes, I was in Philadelphia. Okay. Uh, and it wasn't a big hit. No, it, wa it wasn't a hit at all. It ran for yeah, about a I year, but it didn't make any money. You had seen Company the year before, though. 
I had seen company shortly after it opened. Company was a big hit and extremely controversial. Mm. There were a lot of, uh, you know, theater going New Yorkers who were accustomed to the How to Succeeds and Fiddlers and forums that really resented company. Yeah. Thought that company was an attack on their way of life. I did not feel that way. You also, I was 19 years old and not married. Yeah. So that's something that they talk about with company and we'll get to it with Follies as well, that when the seventies are really kind of when Sondheim became Sondheim in the theater community and sort of in the country became known as this, you know, master genius theater writer. And a lot of his fans were actually young people because a lot of his stuff had to deal with people who were middle-aged or older and young people were distanced enough from that subject matter that they could at least appreciate the work itself and, and the structure and the, and the quality of the writing. Whereas I feel like I might've had some grandparents who saw some Sondheim things around this time and they were a little too hurt about what it was about and how it treated that subject matter to really say, well, the songwriting's good. That's certainly true. And in, you know, what is arguably his greatest work, Sweeney Todd, uh, it can be slow. Yeah, it's company, I think, had the benefit of being company had the benefit of being so new that audiences went in not really having any expectations of the I don't know. I don't want to say the coldness of it, but the the attitude of it. And with Follies being a follow up to Company, you know, a year later and having similar subject matter, it might have turned a lot of people away that had no intention of seeing it. And then people, a lot of people who did see it, didn't like it. So it was, you know, kind of this shrugged off piece. I could say of Company, it had both the the blessing and the curse of being a big departure. Mm. Um, but it also had at least half a dozen great numbers that there was no denying, you know, no matter what the audience's disposition was, they thought that the song and the performance of the song was so good and so innovative that there was no denying it, it, its creativity and I would argue genius, but you know. same, well, honestly, same thing with Follies. I, the thing about Company also is funnier than Follies is. Company is a straight up comedy and has a more optimistic ending to it, whereas Follies is pretty dark. I mean, there's there is humor to Follies, but it it's dark and especially Not the, much. the original original ending. I was reading the original script that James Goldman wrote for the 71 production. And then I was reading the revised version that has since been tinkered with as well. And the original, original version of Follies is so bleak at the end. It's just dark and sad to the point that I'm like, I can understand why some audiences in 1971 walked out going, the fuck did I just watch? This was two hours and 10 minutes of bleakness. You also have to remember, and it's, almost impossible for you to appreciate uh, what 1971 in the Vietnam War was like. Right. Uh, there was a bleakness on the news every day. And people like my parents were not going to the theater for more bleak. No. 
how did you come then to know and like Follies? Because you didn't see it when it was first on Broadway. Uh, how did it make its way into your life? I think it was the concert version at Lincoln Center that was telecast and retelecast. Uh, and it, and you know, I, there must have been at least three revivals since then, all of which I saw. Two, two uh, Broadway revivals which, and one in London, yeah. Uh, and the paper mill. Right, which well, you didn't see the paper mill one. No, but I saw both uh, New York ones and I saw the New York one in L.A. as well. So yes, I you saw did. that twice. Yes, so, it was also done at Encores in, I think, 2007, maybe. Who was in it in Encores? Donna Murphy, Victoria Clark, Victor Garber, and uh, Michael McGrath, who is not, I don't think that's an actor you would know by name, but he's a Tony winning actor. And Christine Baranski did I'm Still Here, which at the time was a big letdown. People weren't very pleased with her I'm Still Here. So, but the rest of that production was considered top notch. So the 80s Avery Fisher Hall concert is what got yes. you into it. And then when it was done in 2001 at Roundabout, that was the first time you saw a production of Follies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I believe that was, I did not see the Roundabout production. I remember when it came out, I remember you going to see it. The, my intro to it, I believe also was the CD we had of the Avery Fisher Hall concert. Also, I think we had a cassette of the London recording at one point. I recall the the poster on a cassette, which is, you know, has like, it says Follies and one of the letters is sort of askew and it's got the woman sort of draping. Am I making that up? I feel like, I remember we had that and Phantom of the Opera, weirdly, on cassette. Um, I cannot verify that. Okay, so you are- That doesn't of, mean you're making it up. It just means I can't verify. It, it just means you're of absolutely no help. Thank you so much. You're a doll. It's what I live for. Do you, okay, so do you remember this? And then we'll go into the history of the show. When Follies was finally done on Broadway again in the revival that Bernadette Peter starred in, I saw it first with Nanny, with mom's mom. And then I went back off to college for my senior year at Emerson. And you had come into the city around, I want to say October or November to see it, right? That's all right. We sat in the first row. I, so I remember- It was brilliant. Well, so I remember you seeing it because you you had texted me to say you were seeing it that day. And I said, oh, we'll, we'll discuss it tomorrow. And then I'm in class and I'm getting phone calls from you and I'm, I can't pick it up because I'm in class. And then I'm getting texts from you saying, call me back, call me back, call me back. And I, I, I completely forgot. I go, something's got to be wrong. So I leave, I step out for a minute. I say, I have to go to the bathroom. I go into the you know area, uh, holding area. I call you and I go, dad, is everything okay? And you go, oh, everything's fine. I just wanted to compare notes on follies with you. <laughs> well, you know, these are, this is big stuff. It, is. it was very big. We had to talk about it. Uh, I thought it was great. I thought, uh, Bernadette Peters was miscast as talented and wonderful as she is. I have thoughts. I have thoughts. We will, we'll get into it. I swear we'll get into it. So let's go and into when, And when that production moved to LA, it was better in LA. Well, Victoria Clark did it in LA. Victoria Clark and also uh, 
Ron Reigns was better in L.A. than he was in New York. That's good to hear. I did not care for his Ben one bit. I don't care. I think he's he was terribly miscast. He could sing it better than any of the other Bens, but he doesn't look like Ben. He doesn't act like Ben. Well, so uh, again, 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 we will get into it because it Sorry. for all the wonderful things about the Avery Fisher Hall concert, it did kind of ruin casting of that show in terms of what people think those roles need to be, which isn't fair to the Avery Fisher Hall concert because it was a concert. It was a you know where the voices kind of come first and star quality and whatnot. But anyway. Let's go into the history of Follies, shall we? How we got here, how we got to have the show mm-hmm. that is known as Follies. So Stephen Sondheim is coming off of uh, his probably, his biggest flop is Anyone Can Whistle at that point, opens in 1964. And then in 1965, he opens Do I Hear a Waltz, which is the musical he writes with Richard Rogers and Arthur Lawrence based off of the play, The Time of the Cuckoo. 1965, he meets James Goldman, who wrote The Lion in Winter, and they discuss ideas for musicals. And Goldman talks about how he read an article about how these former Ziegfeld Follies girls who are much older now, you know, 30, 40 years older, still get together for these, you know, annual reunions. And he said, I think there might be an idea there. The, uh, the concept of a reunion, unfinished business the setting in a theater, it being about show business. And Sondheim goes, yeah, I really like that. And all they really have the idea of is the concept of it being a reunion of people in a theater. That's what they have. And then they decide later on, it's going to be a murder mystery called The Girls Upstairs. Uh, The idea of a murder mystery that is a who'll do it. You know that someone's going to die. And by the end of act one, all the characters have a motive for killing each other. And the idea is in act two to figure out who killed who that's where they're going with. They bring the idea to David Merrick who is interested, but he's also not quite sure what it is they're trying to get at. Uh, He doesn't love the material, but he believes in Sondheim and is willing to try to take a chance. But then Sondheim says, I want you to co-produce it with Leland Hayward and Merrick basically is like, I haven't co-produced in years. Go fuck yourself. And homie don't co-produce. Homie don't co-produce. He's like, excuse you. I just came off of hello Dolly and you want me to co-produce. You can go fuck yourself. And I'm almost positive. That's the exact words that David Merrick used. Sondheim talks about how, uh, in, uh, while they're sort of writing their first draft of the script and they're shopping it around to, uh, a bunch of different, producers they james goldman and stephen sondheim get invited to the one year anniversary of fiddler on the roof and they said the whole thing takes place on the imperial stage and it's everyone you know in the business and everyone's drinking and eating and he said as the night went on people got incredibly sloppy and james goldman and sondheim decided to go into the orchestra sit in like the fourth or fifth row of the theater and just sort of watch the party unfold to see if they can come up with any ideas and they're watching and they see this drunk guy They won't disclose his name, but they see this drunk guy. He's eating a sandwich from the buffet. He's halfway done with it. And he's decides he doesn't want any more. And he's so hammered. He doesn't know what to do with it. He's looking around. He can't find a place to set it on. So he just decides to drop it in the orchestra pit. And Sondheim turned to James Goldman. And he said, we need to put that as the idea of the show. Our show is that action in two hours. They start to get uh, 
traction for the girls upstairs for their murder mystery musical about a Follies reunion called the girls upstairs. And they're aiming to start rehearsal by the end of 1969 for to open in the first half of the 1970 season. While this is happening, Hal Prince brings Stephen Sondheim in and says, this bunch of one act plays that your friend George Firth wrote, I think could be a musical and I want you to write the score. This ends up being company. So the idea is that Girls Upstairs is going to open at the beginning of 1970, produced by Stuart Ostro, and Company's going to open at the end of 1970. But then Stuart Ostro decides he actually doesn't like the script for the Girls Upstairs, and he drops it. And Hal Prince gets a call from Stephen Sondheim, and Sondheim says, I really can't work on Company. I'm so depressed that the Girls Upstairs might not happen. You know, can we push Company back a year? And Hal Prince says, no. I have the money raised. The set is literally being built, Steve. You're not pushing back company. I said, how about this? Give me the script for the girls upstairs. Let me see what I could do with it. So Prince reads the girls upstairs and he basically says, I hate this script. The murder mystery makes no sense. The characters are unlikable. The whole thing is melodrama, but there's some songs here I like. And I like the idea of playing with memory. So he says to Sondheim, if I agree to direct and produce the girls upstairs next year, will you write the score for company? It's like, We'll do company this year and we will do girls upstairs the following year, but you have to write company first. Sondheim says, great. If I have the guarantee for the girls upstairs, I'll write company. So that happens. He writes company, company opens and is, you know, what, what it is. While company's playing its first year before the Tony awards, they go into rehearsals for follies, which is where they change the name from the girls upstairs to follies. Uh, only I think three or four songs remain from the girls upstairs in the final product of follies. One is of course the song. Waiting for the, the girls, girls upstairs. upstairs. Waiting for the girls upstairs. Uh, another one is "Don't Look at Me" in two more too many mornings. But there are a whole bunch of other things that uh, get cut. The original script was a lot more literal. It was more realistic, and Prince wanted it to be more impressionistic, more metaphorical. It, no, he said, "Don't worry about establishing where everybody is." Saying all these uh, grounded things to say, like, "Oh, we are here. We are in the box office. Here we are in a dressing room." He's like, "Just write." whatever you feel is like, think of it as a screenplay. I will just, I will establish where people are. And they wrote all these flashbacks that they then cut because they go, oh, it's going to be too hard to stage this. You have to roll on a, a dressing room. You have to roll off the dressing room. Prince says, don't worry. He's like, write what you write, add all the flashbacks back. I will stage it in a way that makes sense. And Michael Bennett, they want Michael Bennett to do the choreography again after company. Michael Bennett says, I really want to direct. In order to get Michael Bennett to choreograph, Hal Prince says, you can co-direct. The only time Hal Prince ever says that he'll co-direct with someone, he says, if it makes you happy, you can co-direct, but you have to do the musical numbers. So he says, yes. Company uh, Follies is uh, put on a budget of $800,000, which was a record at that time. Oh, how things have changed. And they had a lot of issues casting this thing. Uh, they were looking for women and men of a certain age you know, the image they kept going with while they were designing the show and writing the show is there's an image of Gloria Swanson standing in the rubbles of the Roxy in 1960, I believe. I was about to ask you about that famous picture. Yes. That picture, I think, came in I, rem I vividly remember that picture as being source material for Follies. Yes. Maybe it's not as simple as this, but essentially Prince took that photo of Gloria Swanson, who is a silent movie star and then got sort of a minor comeback with Sunset Boulevard and then continued with her career standing in an evening gown sort of mourning the loss of the Roxy Theater while standing in the rubble 
and it's in the middle of the day. And Prince took this photo and basically told everyone, this is what we're going for. This is what the show is. Uh, he had a specific phrase. He said something along the lines of like, we're looking, oh, we're looking for rubble in the daylight, which is, you know, we're looking for the ruins in people's everyday lives. They kept on uh, writing in all these plot points, all these, all these, you know, minor stories that were supposed to go along. And Sondheim says, we found that all the stuff that we liked the most were the stuff where nothing happened. You know, we write these long stretches of scenes that was just dialogue and, and character exploration. And we like that so much more. And then we would get to a plot point and we go, I hate this. So he's like, as we're doing draft after draft, we find that all the plot points are slowly going away. So by the time we get to rehearsals, there's essentially no story. It's there. He's like, there's a plot that, which is just the general theme of the, of the noise. Yeah. There's the party and there's the noise, but there's no story. There's no beginning, middle and end. And that wasn't by design. That just sort of happened as they continued writing it, where they gravitated towards what, you know. That hasn't changed in 50 years. What hasn't changed? There's no beginning, middle, or end. That hasn't changed in follies or that hasn't changed in life? Yes. (laughs) Sondheim says that the show is about the collapse of the American dream, the ideals of America, uh, as of America as the leader of the world, how those ideals sort of dissolved after World War II and Americans became more dissatisfied with the American life and what they were promised and what they were left with. And that was a major sticking point in the show that a lot of people had issues with as it was a little too reflective of their own lives when they were watching it. It's one of the, it's probably the core of what attracted me. Yeah. And a lot of young people. So not so much the failure of the American way of life as great promise unfulfilled. Right. Which I think a lot of people can relate to, but people don't like to think about that. And Follies is sort of that way of thinking at its most hardened and it's, as I said, at its bleakest these characters that have all these walls up and then slowly they disintegrate. And then I, you know, nothing necessarily changes outwardly about them. They still live the lives they lead, but you hope that there's a general shift in who they are and what they've come to accept about themselves and their lives that can allow them to at least move on with less toxicity, but that's up to interpretation. This show starts in 1941. And the world is the oyster of the four main characters. Well, technically it starts in 1971. But all the... You're splitting hairs. Yes. I think Hal Prince would agree with you there. Fun fact also, Hal Prince said that Fellini had approached him about turning Eight and a Half into a musical back in the 60s. He said, I think Mm -hmm. you should direct the musical version of Eight and a Half. And Prince This is it. Well, Prince goes, no... That's not, that's your story. I can't adapt that. I don't, I, that's not my story. He said, basically Follies was his eight and a half. And then they did turn eight and a half into a musical. And that musical is nine. Yep. But Follies is probably more reflective of eight and a half than uh, nine is, especially the original production, which has, when I was looking at photos and watching clips before I even knew the Fellini story, I wrote in my notes, this is all very Fellini-esque the the style of it the oh, it was impressionistic 
It yeah. wasn't plot driven. It was atmospheric. Which is reflective in the design of it. Boris Aronson's design of the set is this big sort of black box where things move and you never really know where you are, but you know exactly where you are. And the costumes are impressionistic. These big, bold colors that paint each character in vivid detail just from a singular image. You know, it's not realistic costume design. A lot of the original choreography was the 1971 version shadowing the 1941 version or vice versa. Yes. Blurring the line between the past and the present. Yes. Follies is sort of, you know, glass menagerie meets Fellini. That is the best way I can describe it. A memory play with impressionistic style. It's got songs and dances too. Don't forget them. Who could forget them? Get Listen, get rid of the songs and follies and you're left with a book that just is almost incoherent. Absolutely. I don't think Tennessee Williams would... Uh... Well, would like the comparison. Well, no, to say that the book is incoherent without the songs is actually, in my opinion, a compliment to the book because <laughs> it's well, it shows you that you the book needs the songs to work and the songs also need the book. It all blends together to create a greater whole than they might be apart. Some songs and follies are so phenomenal that they can work out of context, but they will always work better in context. But that's getting away from the final push them trying to get into this history here mm -hmm. so as i said they had a lot of trouble casting follies because they were looking for women between the ages of you know 48 and 78 and by 1971 there weren't there wasn't really anything for actresses of a certain age in musical theater a lot of women that were being cast had done broadway had even done old Ziegfeld follies but had been retired for 20 30 years ethel shutta who did broadway baby had not been on stage in 40 years uh, Mary McCarthy, I think is her name, who did uh, Stella, Stella Deems. She hadn't been on Broadway since the 50s. And this was sort of a minor comeback for her. And that was sort of the casting of this original production drew a lot of ill will from critics because they thought a lot of the casting was rather cruel because it was so meta. These women and some of these men who had had promising careers that never really came to be. And then they all culminate in the show that's about people that had promise that never came to be. And everyone's sort of going, why are you spitting in the face of all of these fine upstanding performers? Mm, that, I'm not saying that's I, what- I, I didn't know that. I'm not saying that that's what the production did. I think that the production did something much kinder than no, that. I didn't, I was unaware of that criticism until you just told me about it. You can read about it in Everything Was Possible, the Ted Chapin book. He talks about how a lot of critics and even audience members were really turned off by the casting when they sort of watched the show because they thought it was mean-spirited towards the people performing. They thought it was hitting too close to home and too ruthless about those actors' own careers. They do eventually cast the whole show. Uh, you know, Alexa Smith, former movie star is Phyllis. Dorothy Collins, former TV star is Sally. Yvonne DiCarlo, minor movie star, minor TV star is um, Carlotta. And they go into rehearsal with only, you know, maybe two thirds of the show written. The final page is said, you know, TBD, to be early, to be written. They don't know how they're going to end the show. 
some songs haven't been written yet. Some songs are going to get rearranged. They do get the show finished. They The show does get finished while in rehearsal just before they leave for Boston. They go to Boston where the reviews are kind of divisive. They do a lot of changes. The prologue was, in, was totally different from how it is now. It was much more... I don't want to use the word avant-garde, but esoteric. They used sound effects of, you know, old radio programs filtered into the speakers. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it opened with sort of old, the best way I can describe it is like when you go to Tower of Terror at Disney World and you're walking through the lobby and you hear muffled radio programs through the speakers from like the 30s and 40s with an announcer and, you know, some crooner. Have you ever heard it? Yeah, also, there's there's audio of one of the early Boston tryouts with that original prologue. On YouTube? Yep, it's on YouTube. I'll send it to you. It is it is quite fascinating, and it doesn't work. It's too jarring because it you don't know where it's going. You don't know what it's trying to accomplish. It sounds not pedestrian, but slapdash. And the final version of the prologue was why Mike... Is, it's truly the best example of why Michael Bennett was brought on to work on this show because his musical theater sensibility was beyond reproach and Hal Prince was much more of an esoteric director. He cared more about how his show looked. He cared more about challenging himself as a director, challenging an audience. And Michael Bennett was sort of the one person on the creative team being like, we've got 1500 people out there who paid money yeah. and gave up we've two got hours to figure of their out time. What's going to play. Yeah. Well, we have to not resent them. We have to give, we have to let them give a bit and Hal Prince was being a little more unrelenting and that was sort of the great push and pull with the creative team. Michael Bennett wanted this five-year-long hit show and Hal Prince was like, I don't care if it runs five years. I want to make the show we want to make. And so there was that push and pull. And the things that Michael Bennett contributed are the things that people loved the most in the original run. The opening, who's the staging of Who's That Woman, things like that. Uh, So they leave Boston with a couple of different songs, a new opening, and it opens at the Winter Garden. And we'll get to all of that once we finish discussing the show itself. So, Papa, in a nutshell, what is Follies about and who are our four main characters? I always thought it was about young people with uh, unlimited potential and their lives spread out in front of them who revisit 30 years later that regardless of what they've accomplished or hadn't accomplished, none of them are happy. None of them look back on their lives with satisfaction. The four main characters are Ben, unhappily married to the beautiful and urbane Phyllis, almost as urbane as Ben, Mm. who is the apotheosis of urbanity. Uh, but they hate each other at the same time that they love each other. Yeah. Uh, he it's is not... serially unfaithful, mm-hmm. as is she, except that she knows he's serious, serially unfaithful, and he doesn't know that she is. Infidelity is most... Uh, there's a saying about how, like, infidelity isn't a cause, it's a symptom. Absolutely. And, yeah, and so they're not... They do, they're not uh, unhappy because the other one's cheating. They're cheating because no. they're both unhappy. Uh, in Ben's case, none of what he's accomplished or what he's become 
feels like an accomplishment to him. Mm-hmm. It feels empty uh, and not that hard to do. And he's gotten rich and famous and respected for stuff that he doesn't respect. And Phyllis wanted a real marriage uh, and real intimacy. And Ben's not capable of that. Mm. So, um, so th- that that is half of the uh, the main cast, and the other half is Buddy and Sally. Sally, who was in love with Ben in 1941, but gets jilted by him mm-hmm. when Ben leaves Sally for her good friend Phyllis, mm-hmm. and uh, ends up married to Buddy, who is also chronically unhappy and unfaithful unfit yes um and poor sally would probably like to be unfaithful but doesn't have much of an opportunity yeah so how do they all come together standing in the middle of the floor in arizona what brings them all together dad dimitri weissman the empresario of the weissman follies decides to have a reunion of the Weissman girls from 1919 to 1941 Mm -hmm. in the theater where the Follies took place just before the theater is to be demolished and turned into a parking lot. In its final burst of glory, it is to become a parking parking lot. This is a party that Sally is looking forward to, uh, and is going to be the highlight, not only of her year, but maybe of her life, particularly if she can woo Ben away from Phyllis, because she's been carrying a torch for Ben for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sort of none of the other three main characters really want to go. You might say Phyllis wanted to go. Phyllis wants Phil- to go. Phyllis looks great. Phyllis... Uh, has all of the things that that the other guests think they want. Yeah, that's partly it. I think that is definitely in there, that idea of going to a reunion and sort of showing everyone who knew you at your least competent, how competent you have become. But I mean, that's that's the root that of- That must ro- be why I don't go to reunions. Well, watch Romy and Michelle's high school reunion a bit more. It'll give you confidence to go. Once was enough. I've never been to a reunion. But, I mean, all you have to do is actually look at Romy and Michelle's high school reunion to sort of see what drives people to see everyone that they knew at their lowest. They want to come back and show that everyone who doubted them was wrong. I don't think everyone... Just, hmm? just bring post-its. Just bring post-its. So... Phyllis also talks about how she sort of everybody who's coming to this party in one way or another, or at least of our four main characters, I should say, is sort of a little listless. They're not really sure where they're at or where they're going and are kind of trying to go back to their roots and figure out what went wrong, where they were led astray and how they can kind of go back on course. And for Sally, that is possibly meeting Ben again and rekindling that Uh, for Phyllis. It's going back to what drove her to New York in the first place. There's a great line. She says in the beginning, 
She said, I've been devoting my attention to beginnings lately. I wanted something when I came here 30 years ago, but I forgot to write it down. And now God knows what it was. I didn't remember that. It's a great, the, the show is filled with all these really wonderful lines that are very clever, but also very artful. They're almost like little bits of uh, urbane poetry. There's another line that gets cut a lot, which is, don't you wish you were young again? And someone responds, once was enough. That's a sentiment widely held mm-hmm. by people of my generation. You know what it is? I always say if I and, could... And widely held by every generation. Yeah, I think, and it's, it's I, I don't think there's anyone out there that would disagree with this. I don't think I came up with the concept, but I always think about it to myself. If I could be where I was again with everything I know now, you know, with the brain I have now, with the at the time that I was young, with the opportunities that I had, that would be interesting to sort of see what changes I would make, what 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 opportunities I would try to go for. But to literally go back to the age you were in the exact time you were with all the things you didn't know. It's not great. People sort of glamorize the past. And Prince talks about this with Follies, about how we wax poetic on the past. Because in truth, it's just, it feels safe because it's a time that we knew and a time that we knew we survived from. We don't know. Exactly, we got through. Yeah, we got through the past. We don't know if we're getting through the present. So the present is more scary. The past is safer because we can go, oh yes, I, I remember this. I came out of this. I'm Sally Durant, plumber. I was a Weissman girl. It was so glamorous. All those eyes looking at you. It's going to be a lovely party. I'm so glad I came. Sally is the first to arrive. And we also learn, by the way, that she came against Buddy's wishes. Before we know much about Sally's relationship with Ben and all that unfolded in the past, we do find out that Sally flew across the country from Arizona to New York to see the theater. She's the first to arrive. She spent all day long strolling the streets of New York, visiting her old apartment that apparently isn't there anymore. And her husband buddy follows her because he knows that she's going to this party for one reason and one reason alone and is trying to stop her from going after Ben. Not because she thinks that, not because buddy thinks there's any possibility that Ben will walk away with Sally, but because he knows that Sally is too mentally and emotionally fragile to handle the rejection that she's about to get from Ben. One might say that Sally is slowly losing her mind. It's like she's losing her mind. It's like she's losing her mind. So when you mentioned Bernadette Peters' performance, I kind of want to talk about this with the character of Sally. Apparently when Bernadette got to play Sally, Sondheim said to her, congratulations on getting the part. She's crazy. Which is the wrong way to look at Sally because you come in already mentally unbalanced you're showing the whole deck way too soon. Sally has so much fragility, but she's not mentally off her rocker. 
he, he is a mixture of hope and sadness. Mm -hmm. Mostly, most of her life is sadness. And this party is hope. And we aren't aware of how much devastation Sally has been through until really the last part of the show, when we go through the breakdown and we realize she tried to kill herself back, you know, 30 years ago when Ben rejected her for Phyllis and Buddy kind of was left to pick up the pieces and they had two kids to kind of take her mind off of it. And she just wants love. She wants to be loved. And the sad irony is that Buddy actually loves her and wants to provide that for her. But because she thinks so little of him, she doesn't even really consider what Buddy has to offer or what he's ever done for her. She has a song called Buddy, in yeah. Buddy yeah. That's, well, that's not her song. That's his song, but yes. I understand. <laughs> she has a where, song. Where, where did he get that? Yes. Where, yeah. There's some kernel, there's a kernel of truth there. Well, and so, as I said, we're not really going to go through the whole show song by song, plot point by plot point, mostly because there, again, there's no real plot. I wanted to sort of go into what we go into, much like how the show sort of works. She has a song called In Buddy's Eyes, which she sings to Ben which Sondheim is described as a lie. And it's a little more complicated than that. The song is basically Sally and Ben throughout the party. Sally makes her way to find Ben. And she has one, my, one of my personal favorite songs in the show. It's a, such a short song. It's called Don't Look At Me. And you kind of, you hear in the music, the excitement and the butterflies in her stomach of seeing Ben, of being in this theater again, of not knowing what she's going to say or do. And you can hear in the lyrics, the back and forth she has with herself. No, don't look at me. I know that face you're trying to place the name. Say something, Ben, anything. No, don't talk to me, Ben. I forget. To Ben, it's, you know, two old lovers possibly maybe having sex again somewhere in the theater. To Sally, it's, you know, this guy is going to save me from the depression that he put me in 30 years ago and carry me away and it's all going to be good. But they go they, from that moment on, they sort of pair off and spend the majority of the party together. And Ben sings The Road You Didn't Take, which we'll get into. But Sally sings as a response in Buddy's eyes. And Sondheim calls this song a lie. It's the song she sings to Ben to say that she made the right choice. She married the right man. And while, you know, life can be slow, it's all wonderful because of Buddy. And he calls the song a lie because Sally doesn't believe it. And that's true. But this, what's sort of the sad irony of the song is that it's not really a lie because Buddy does feel that way. Sally just does not register Buddy, so she can't see that that's actually how he is. That's actually how he feels about her. She says these things thinking that it's a lie, that she's saying it to herself, you know, making it up for the sake of Ben. But the audience knows that it actually is true. She's just too in her own worlds to, to see that. I'm still the 
it's brilliant as you describe it. I just don't think most people got it. Most people didn't get Follies at all. Do you uh, have a point? Yeah. They probably didn't even think it was a very good song. Some people would hear it and go, oh, it's unmelodic. I can't hum it. Sometimes people are stupid. I like that song. It's a great song. Look at the material. I didn't know it was a lie. The song is a lie in regards to Sally's mind frame. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a lie that she tells herself to, you know, get out of the scene. But the irony is that the song is actually a truth. She just can't see it. Which also reflects Ben. Ben has a similar issue. Ben can't see what's right there. And he, and he talks about this with Phyllis. He says at the end, after his breakdown, I, I always say to myself, it can't be me she loves. There's got to be something off. And Phyllis says, well, think again. I do love you. And it is, and I love the you that you actually are, not the you that you pretend to be. And that's sort of the first step towards their recovery. It's always been hard for me to sort out who Ben really is. I don't think we ever find out who Ben really is. We know his public persona and that he's not happy with it. Ben is somebody who I think we can all relate to in the sense that he put so much faith into things and goals and people and places, you know, American ideals of, you know, you work hard and you get this thing, which is a symbol of ethic. Yes. The, the, the symbol of success, you, you make enough money to buy the things that show that you had enough money to buy the things, which is a result of being successful at what you do but he doesn't actually enjoy any of it. He doesn't like any of it. He doesn't. And as you said, he doesn't respect any of it. So he's in this crisis of not knowing what to do because he spent so long thinking that this was what he wanted. And this is what he needed to do to be happy. What was was expected of him? Sure. Even more so than what he wanted, what was expected of him. One of these days, he's going to have the biggest goddamn limousine. That's what he's always saying. The road you didn't take hardly comes to mind. Does it? The door you didn't try, where could it have led? The choice you didn't make never was defined. Was it? Dreams you didn't dare are dead. Were they ever there? Who said, I don't remember? I don't remember at all. What is your favorite song in this show? Hard to pick one. I have a couple. Okay, give me a couple. Um, losing, losing my mind is certainly uh, at the top. Mm-hmm. But you're gonna love tomorrow. Can make me tear up. What doesn't make you tear up? You cry it so much. Well, a dramatic golf tournament might make me tear up. You're very in touch with your emotions, and we the love to see it. Tough. I, I try to touch my emotions several times a week. Dad, we're not talking about sex. Stop it. <laughs> we can't get shut down on this podcast. Come on. Uh, you can always edit. Never. I wouldn't uh, cut any of this out. Lucy. Now, um, who's that woman is the best number. Mm-hmm. Indestructible, I would say. Uh, the God knows it's been tried. Well, so do you know how that song came to be? Or rather, I should say... The, the point of view of the song changed in rehearsal. 
Uh, I don't remember. So I assume it's in Ted Chapin's book. It, it's all in Ted Chapin's book. It's wonderful. But Sondheim talks about it too. Who's that woman was supposed to be a number where the women were going to sort of... So originally the idea was at the end of the show, there was going to be a big literal follies that the women in the show were going to get drunk and put on a little stage show for the men at the party. And as they sort of did this impromptu number, uh, this impromptu follies, everything starts to fall apart and people have a mental breakdown that got replaced by a metaphorical follies that represented everyone's psyche. And I believe who's that woman was going to be in their literal follies. And then it got moved to the middle and Sondheim's concept was these women are doing this number from the olden days and a spot is empty and you realize it's because one of the women is dead and isn't able to do the number. So literally who's that woman? Like, you know, who's that woman that's missing? You mean she is a former woman? Former woman. Who's that woman? I know, I know that woman so clever, but ever so sad. Love, she said was a fad. The kind of love that she could make fun of, she'd have none of. Sondheim gets into rehearsal to see that Michael Bennett has completely changed the number and its whole meaning. And Michael Bennett says, you know, don't worry, this is going to work really well. And Michael Bennett's whole mentality for it is, Instead of about, you know, oh, this one woman who's dead, he said, we don't have enough women in the company to let that image land. If we had 40 women, it would be a lot more evident to the audience that one person is missing. But we have seven women and it doesn't it won't read. So he decided to make it a mirror number of these women who are sort of reliving their glory. And while they're doing so, we see their past selves mirroring their actions. Halfway through, as they're really sort of channeling their past selves, their actual past selves show up as yeah. ghosts. And then this, they end up dancing this number together. number winded me 30 years ago. This Phil, if you can do it, I can do it. Can you believe I have stage fright? And then, of course, Stritchy at the concert says, Patty, I haven't danced in 30 years. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of how that number came to be. And it was a number that they talk about. No matter what performance of Follies, because, you know, some audiences were hostile, some were more receptive. No matter the audience, that number always killed. That's a showstopper. It they, is. They could have made it the 11 o'clock number, except that it, it was completely the reverse of how the show was going to end. Absolutely. Follies is relentless, whereas Company, while it makes fun, again, it's, it's truly a comedy. And everyone is played up to such high caricatures that... There's, there can still be audience members who say to themselves, well, that's not me. Follies, while it's impressionistic, it is much more human characters on the stage. Likeable or not, they are not the cartoons that they are in company. And it's harder to distance yourself from that in Follies. And again, the ending is much more depressing. Do you remember, Dad, when Paddington 2 came out into theaters and I told you to go see it? I do remember. It's still on my DVR. 
I told you not only is it a great screenplay, one of the, the best that I've encountered, but I also told you, and you can roll your eyes all you all you want. I said what I said, and I said what I meant. Do you recall that I told you that there's a number from Follies in Paddington 2? No, I don't remember that. I told you, I said, there's a song from Follies in Paddington 2, and I guarantee you it's not a song you're thinking of. I said, you could name me six songs right here, right now. You won't name the song that's in Paddington 2. Rain on the Roof? <laughs> yes, but I'm almost positive that's because you remember what I told you. No. That's exactly the number. That's exactly it. Um, you know, if you tell me it's not, what song from Follies would fit in Paddington? Well, and also when I tell you it's not a song you're thinking of. It's like, yeah. the, when, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, there's a song in Paddington 2 from Follies. You go, oh, Broadway, baby. It's like, no, 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 no. no. Think, like, think that, of the last song would... you could think of in a thing. It's Brain well, on the Roof. So... So I'm your, I'm your was son. That, was what, that a bullseye? You are my father and I'm your son. That is what we have learned right here, right now. <laughs> Hugh Grant wants to launch a comeback. Actually, it's very reminiscent of Follies. Hugh Grant is, in, is a has-been actor trying to stage a comeback and he wants to put up a one-man show. And every time he's trying to pitch people his one-man show, he goes, darkness, then the spotlight hits me. And all of a sudden you hear, listen to the rain on the roof. And he keeps getting interrupted as he's trying to sell his one-man show throughout the entire movie. And then he ends up in jail by the end because he's the bad guy. And the movie ends with him in jail, but he's happy because he finally gets to do his one-man show. And he, d- he does a full-blown production number of rain on the roof in prison with all the other prisoners. Dad, it's amazing. You've given me new reason to see Paddington. Both of them are I wonderful. Told you it's- it's on my, I, but you told me I can see two without seeing one. You can see two without seeing one. I think that, I mean, we don't have to talk about Paddington too long. Paddington one is a delightful movie that I think is very worthwhile. Paddington two is a great movie that has, in my opinion, an indestructible screenplay. Oh, I shall now, I have renewed interest. It's just, well, you also have to remember the kind of movie that it is. When I say great, are you going to think, oh, I'm going to watch Lawrence of Arabia? You're watching a you know, 100-minute children's movie that just does the most delightful and intelligent version of a children's movie. There are 100 checkoff guns in that movie that you don't realize are checkoff guns, and then they all go off in the third act, and you didn't realize it. It's wonderful. It's so inventive and creative. Let's get back to Follies. We are back into Follies. One of your favorite lyrics is in the opening or not the opening but the first full-blown musical number of the show beautiful girls this is how samson was shorn each a delilah each in her style a delilah her style a delilah reborn yep i know that's one of your favorites that was a number that critics had a problem with they thought that the production was because those women come down to sing beautiful girls they go down the staircase and you know in their final burst of glory, you know, act as they did when they were young, critics thought that the production was mocking them. You know, to watch Dorothy Collins and Alexis Smith and Ethel Shutta and Fifi Dorsey to walk down those steps being called beautiful girls. The critics said, how cruel of follies to say that to them. To which I'm like, how cruel of you to say that they're not worth- They're not. 
to say that they're not like that's it was bla- ugh, such blatant misogyny but th- talk talk about the role of frank rich with this show frank rich wasn't a theater critic yet he was in he was at harvard he was a senior yeah, year he, he wrote a review for the crimson yep when it was in boston and yeah it was a review that was so well done and was the closest of any published review at the time that understood what they were trying to do and the fact that he was 21 22 fascinated them that Hal Prince invited Frank Rich to lunch to talk about theater and sort of where Frank Rich was looking to go there it's it was the beginning of you know of Frank Rich's career it, yes. it's it's it signaled it's it signaled that he was on to great things Frank Rich is still my favorite theater critic that's ever existed because he he is a critic who understood what each production was trying to do and would judge them on those merits. Whether he thought it was successful enough or not was his own, you know, it was up to him. But he also held everything up to a high standard because it's Broadway and Broadway is supposed to be... It's supposed to be good. It's supposed to be the pinnacle of art and commerce and the two are supposed to sort of blend hand in hand. He would be a little more lenient if a show was more art than commerce, but he would be absolutely brutal if he thought that the show was more commerce than art. And I always say, because he was called the butcher of Broadway during his reign at the times. I always say Frank Rich was incredibly fair and gave plenty of wonderful reviews. It's not his fault that he was the chief theater critic of the times during the worst artistic decade of Broadway history, which is the 1980s. Uh, What did he say about Les Mis? He loved Les Mis. But he also, you know, says the Les Mis wasn't perfect. It had its flaws, but he said, it's so effective. You can't deny it. He said the same thing about Phantom and Cats when they came out. He's like, listen, I don't think that Phantom or Cats are good musicals, but they these will be effective to a lot of audience members. And you can't deny that. Which, was he wrong? They ran. I'm just a Broadway baby. Walking off my tired feet Pounding 42nd Street To be in a show <sighs> Broadway, baby For a show that like had kind of a divisive time on Broadway and was very much a cult musical, this show has turned out so many standards in the theater community that it's absolutely incredible. Losing My Mind... Broadway baby, uh, I'm still here. It's these songs that just get passed around and and idolized to the point that you go, how did audiences not hear Broadway baby and at least then go that was delightful or hear I'm still here and not like stand on their feet. That just these songs that are just so well crafted and so different from each other. You're it's never repetitious. Each the next song is different from the previous. Was Yvonne De Carlo able to sell it? Yeah, apparently she had trouble remembering the lyrics sometimes, but wow. I was reading an interview with Dorothy Collins where she said she was so in character that even when she forgot the lyrics, it made sense. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Dorothy Collins. Man, Hopefully Dorothy Collins wasn't in character. No. She, 
Dorothy Collins, from what I read, was the ultimate professional. You know, yeah. never missed. Was so thorough. Was a sweetheart backstage. And you know, while this kind of revived Alexis Smith's career when she played Phyllis, whoever plays Phyllis kind of really does walk away with the show because Phyllis gets some of the best lines, has some great numbers. She's the best looking woman. Yeah, she's in the same way that Avita has become a big gay musical in the gay community in the queer community phyllis is sort of similar this ice queen who dresses so fantastically with these great one-liners and gets to sort of live out the bitchy reality that is many gay men's fantasies you know she's the best looking weissman follies girl but it's not that counts that count that counts for something in that world in that world but also it was I don't, I don't want to keep harping on her looks because yes, her aesthetic is important to the world of Follies, but I don't think that's what makes Phyllis the best character in the show. No, I'm not. It's, it doesn't. Uh, but, and I'm, I don't want to harp on it, but you can't discount it. No. It's critical to who Phyllis is and why Phyllis likes being there. So. She looks better than everybody else. Well, so. I want to talk about for a second costumes. The costume, first of all, the original production of Follies was notorious for its design. It's considered one of the best design shows ever. And the costumes in particular have been called the best costumes to ever exist on a Broadway stage still to this day. And all you have to do is look at some photos to go that kind of tracks. When the Bernadette Peters revival was happening, first it started at the Kennedy center. And when it was at the Kennedy center, she came out as Sally in a spaghetti strap, low cut red cocktail dress that went to her knees, very elegant. And all the Follies fans threw a fit. And the director and the costume Sally designer- Sally would never wear that. Well, the, Sally would never have that. She would never have that. It, it made, Bernadette Peters came out looking like a million bucks. And everyone said, you're costuming Bernadette Peters right now. You're not costuming Sally. And the director and the, and the costume designer said in an interview, like, who would have thought a little red dress would have caused such a fear? And everyone said, it represents what you're not understanding about the show. If you can't get us something as simple as this, who's to say you're going to get the more complicated themes about it? The original production, Alexis Smith came out in a long red dress with an open back, very reminiscent to Hilary Swank's dress uh, at the Oscars for Million Dollar Baby. For those of you who remember, it was that but red. And Dorothy Collins came out in a big poofy dress, strapless with all these flowers on it and bright pink and was very girly and very- um, Sally would think was perfect. Yes. The, the stage directions read that Sally thinks that she's cute and she's dressing like she's cute. She's sort of thinking she's still 21 or 19 and that she can pull off this outfit, but she's forgetting two things. She's not 19 and it's not 1941. Style is different and she's different. But she can't get her virginity back. I mean, if we all could get our virginities back, the things we could do. from career to career.
one of the biggest numbers in this party time is a song called I'm Still Here, which we had referenced, originally sung by Yvonne DiCarlo, who is a, her character is the most famous woman at the party. If Phyllis is the most beautiful, I would say Carlotta is probably the second most beautiful, but more successful than Phyllis because she did it on her own. Carlotta's not well, married to anyone. She's well. She's independently wealthy and successful. That song has another of my favorite lines, which is been called a pinko kami tool, got through its stinko by my pool. Yep. So this song... That's called irony. This song started as a song called Can That Boy Foxtrot, which was supposed to be a one-joke, two-verse song that you know would get cut off and then they would move on. And the whole point of the song that Can That Boy Foxtrot was a play on the, the F sound. Every time that Yvonne DiCarlo's character was singing about a boy that she's with, who everyone goes, why are you with him? She goes, Can That Boy Foxtrot. And as soon as they cast Yvonne DiCarlo, they go, well, we need to give her a big number. So Sondheim took this, took this one joke song, expanded it to three and a half minutes where it didn't work. They go to Boston where it's, it's met with polite applause. And Yvonne DiCarlo has this big meltdown about it. She goes, I don't know what to do. Please don't fire me. And Sondheim goes, we're not firing you. I have to write you something else. So he sits down with Yvonne to talk about her life and her career. And then he notices all these parallels to Joan Crawford. And so he basically writes this song, which is a combo of Joan Crawford's career and Yvonne DiCarlo's career. And it's called I'm Still Here. Fun fact, can that boy Foxtrot, you can hear the very beginning of it in the movie, The Birdcage. Didn't know that. When Nathan Lane as Starina finally makes it to the stage at the beginning of the movie and he begins his number and it's, I know this grocery clerk, unprepossessing. And then they cut to the next scene. And... On top of that, Christine Baranski and Robin Williams sing a cut song from Forum. So for those of you who are wondering if the birdcage isn't gay enough, it's plenty gay. It oh. has two cut Sondheim numbers plus a number that Sondheim wrote for the movie. It's very gay. No, no one has ever criticized birdcage for being under gay. Um, some have. Some have said that it's not representative enough of gay culture. But that's not what I'm talking about. This song... How would you describe I'm Still Here? Defiantly proud. Yeah. It's a declaration. It's a, you can't get me. Look what I've gone through. Yeah. No matter what you throw at me, I've, I've been through it, done it, survived it. And here I am. And I'm still doing what I do. I always think that the people who do that song uh, blow the line. Uh, still someone said I'm she's sincere that needs to be very deadpan mm -hmm. and not animated it should be sort of like she's sincere yeah that that makes the line work because it it, it speaks to the uh, ephemeral and ambivalent nature of what makes somebody a a success the luck involved the... the yeah and sometimes it's not in your own hands but it's about it's it's not about what life throws it throws at you it's about what you do with it you know carlotta's probably well, it, 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 oh, i'm thinking something else no i know what you're thinking. thinking you're saying you're talking about that what specific... makes somebody good you're, you know what's, you're talking what's about good a specific is so line. arbitrary 
No, you're talking about a specific line. I'm talking about the song in general. This line oh. you're talking about, she's sincere. Yes, that is something that is not in her control. That's pure luck. And it's something. And it's, it's arbitrary. But, you know, who's good at that or yeah. not good? Because some, you know, please. Some, no one said that she had talent. They said she's sincere. And it's like, well, A, what the fuck does that mean? And B, what does that have to do with her being in movies? It's a pure stroke of luck that that's what they saw in her and that's what made them give her and they happen to like it at yeah. that moment there's a defiance in this song that you really can't deny of a woman who's toughened and happy she's sort of like there are other characters in the show that are content with their lot Carlotta's perhaps the only one who gets a song devoted to that uh, outside of the four main mm. characters. And it's sort of, I don't know, it's hard to for me to explain. It's refreshing to hear because it's sort of the, it's the song that all those other four main characters need to hear of, you know, the world's going to throw you curveballs and you won't always hit them. You don't go spend three hours about the balls you didn't hit. You keep, you keep swinging. Do you like that I made a sports reference? Uh, I'm surprised. Have I made but, you proud, Daddy? Uh, you've made me proud a lot more. I didn't need this to make me proud of you, but... Uh, but it certainly helps. I, I, every time I, I think of you playing in the softball game with your actor friends and then being surprised that you can catch and hit it all, uh, I thank Camp Cedar for that. I made it through Cedar, and I'm here. I've run the gamut, A to C. Three cheers of famine, say love me. I got through all of last year, and I'm here. Lord knows at least I've been there, and I'm here. You didn't know you were going to get this much A material from me, did you? I absolutely knew. I Rain expected all roof. of it. Rain on the roof. Rain on the uh, It still blows my mind that you were able to guess that because <laughs> so many people that I said that exact same thing to did, could never guess Rain on the Roof. They started with Broadway Baby, then Oh Opry, and then they wouldn't even go one further. They would then go to, oh, a beautiful girl. So I was like, no, you, you were in the montage. You got it. You were right there in the pocket and you blew it. Um, too Many Mornings. How do you feel about this song, Papa? I think it's very valuable. Might come a little too early in the show. Uh, How so? It sets Ben pretty much here in the middle of the first act. It defines Ben. Mm. Uh, and makes, you know, You're Gonna Love Tomorrow, which is, I told you, is one of my favorite songs. It's almost dramatically an anticlimax after too many mornings. After too many mornings, where is there to go with Ben? What do you, well, I think there's a lot to go with Ben after too many mornings. I think Road that you, I think Road You Didn't Take is a better definition of who Ben is as a person, which is the whole song is about regret 
And regret is not something that is healthy to hold on to. There's nothing productive about regret unless you use it to influence your choices in the future. But Ben doesn't make choices. He's constantly at a standstill. And Too Many Mornings is an example of him committing to the wrong thing for the wrong reasons. You see it in the staging. He's singing not to Sally, but to the memory of Sally and what the memory of Sally represents, which is all this promise or a time when he had promise and he had options. Mm. Sally is singing to Ben because in the present, she's seeing her way out. And when the song ends and Sally says, we're going to get married now, right? And Ben realizes the enormity of what of what he's just said, because he doesn't say it meaning it. He says it thinking that, oh, we'll have sex and we'll move on from this. But he is starting to realize what's, he starts- I'm not as convinced as you are that he's trying to make Sally at the party. Well, he says- He says so after the song. Yes, but 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 he does say after the song, he says, I want you, let's go somewhere. And she says, great, sure. But before we do that, we're going to get married. Uh, I don't think it's that. purely, I don't think Too Many Mornings is purely a seduction song. I think th- this, the music doesn't allow for that. He is definitely hearkening back to a memory, yeah. trying to attach himself to it. And I guess you could argue what better way to have intimacy with someone than to have sex with them, or at least that's in Ben's mind. You know, what better way to, you know, have a connection with someone than to be intimate with them. But he doesn't mean it and he doesn't really want it. And it's not until Sally goes full throttle at him with what she wants, because she so clearly knows what she wants and and states it. And it's so not what he wants and he flees. So there's still so much more to go with Ben. This is why you can't have an intermission after too many mornings, because you'd think that it's, you know, the plot's going to change and they're going to run off together. They don't. It's. It's an it's a mistake well, that he almost makes. You're right. Uh, the road you didn't take is more Ben than too many mornings. But the road you didn't take isn't much of a song. It I depends. Mean, it's, well, it's a couple of lines. It's a monologue. Road you didn't take is a monologue. I sent you the link to John McMartin doing it at the birthday concert, and it's beautiful. It's so. I don't know. I find it very effective. The problem is, is when people cast Ben as a big singer, which the role really isn't. No. John McMartin was not an opera singer. He was an actor who could sing. He was an actor who could sing. Sing well, but he was an actor who sang. And then, no, I'm going to hold off on. He he actually had a good uh, speaking voice. Yeah. He didn't have a deep singing voice. No, he had a silvery tone about him. Very, uh-huh. he had very much aged version of the Not boy next from door. Brooklyn. He Ben was never the jock. He was never the quarterback. He was the pretty good-looking, scrawny, you know, uh, brainy guy who, once he got older, was able to have, was able to use his wiles to get women in a way that he never probably had before. He probably did very well in school. Could have been the valedictorian. Mm -hmm. But he ended up with Phyllis. Not a bad person to be with. He just just emotionally neglected her and turned her into who she was. And the collection of the world's best books. Mm -hmm. And it's been it. Mm -hmm. Could I leave you 
evenings of martyred looks, cryptic sighs, sullen glares from those injured eyes, leave the quips with the sting, jokes with the sneer, passionless lovemaking once a year, leave the lies ill-concealed, and the wounds never healed, and the game's not worth winning, and wait! I'm just beginning. What? Leave you. Leave so actually, I want to go into that. It, uh, could I leave you? This song is a tour de force that is, in my opinion, the hardest song to crack in this show because actresses treat it like a tour de force. You can't be feeling yourself too much when doing this song. You have to kind of have laser focus on who you're speaking to and what you're talking about. I'm trying to think through what you're saying. So it's the difference. Are, are you saying this song is as much about Ben as it is about Phyllis? I'm saying that there are actresses who make it about the actress and don't make it about Phyllis and forget the, almost that Ben is there and make it more about this is my moment and they sort of indulge. And you do that we see the actress and we applaud the actress, but we don't applaud the moment and it doesn't work as well in the story. You know, it's an angry song and Ben doesn't interrupt once in it. So you have to perform it in a way that it would make sense that Ben would sit there for all two and a half minutes of it. There are performances of this song where I go, who in their right mind would sit there and just take all of this? You have to find a way into the song so that way it is still a scene, not just a speech. I don't know how to do that. Well, you're not an actress. Of course I am. <laughs> we go into a breakdown, a, a theatrical mental breakdown, which is Loveland. I think I can only imagine in 1971, you know, you have this show that's taking place in one landscape this black box of a of an abandoned theater and it's all these scenes and people you don't like and arguments and arguments and songs about arguments and then it's hitting this fever pitch and all of a sudden as the actors are screaming at each other and then also their past selves you know lashing out at at who they mm -hmm. once were it's a great moment all of a sudden the music blares and this dark decrepit set gets covered in lace and backdrops and all of a sudden we are in this gorgeous uh setting that is so loveland. loveland we're in a total 180 and the chorus comes on in cavalier outfits and showgirl outfits and you're going what i can imagine you know 1971 audiences who maybe weren't taken with company or going into follies not knowing what to expect at that point kind of going i'm out i don't know what's happening And Chapin talks about and everything was possible when they were in Boston, Hal Prince and Michael Bennett kept toying with trying to make it clearer to audiences that this was a mental breakdown and that these were songs that represented the characters in a uh, metaphorical way. And they tried to have the actors on stage for each other's numbers watching it. They tried to have the actors do their Follies numbers in their party outfits and not their Follies outfits, which... Dorothy Collins was not pleased about 
because she was willing to wear Sally's party dress because that made sense for Sally. But she was given this beautiful silver dress for losing my mind. And she's like, you're telling me I have to not wear that. I can't wear that. Are you absolutely shitting me? Yeah, Loveland. It's a theatrical metaphor for a mental breakdown. I didn't know anything about the costumes in the wardrobe. Yeah, they... They were, they, they went through, they were a whole bunch of costumes that were made and rejected. You know, Florence Klotz or Florence Klotz uh, designed a whole bunch on the off chance that they might be needed. And they did this whole costume parade in Boston and tried a lot of different things out. Uh, They had made Alexis Smith, this big beaded velvet dress for her Follies number, in addition to a couple of other things. And it didn't work. And they made her real costume, the one that was on Broadway, I think, in between Boston and Broadway. She wore something completely different. She also had a Rita Hayworth wig for Boston that was long and down to her hips. I remember uh, reading in the Chad Chapin book about the set that was being made somewhere in a a cost, uh, uh, warehouse in, in the Bronx. A, sh- a shop in the Bronx. And it, it kept getting more and more expensive and more and more difficult to make. And was it ever going to be ready? They also rehearsed it on the set in the warehouse because it was, yeah, the staging was, move it. yeah, the staging was so reliant on these platforms and how everything was going to go. And it was really important to them to work on it. So I think the first two weeks of rehearsal were in a studio and then they moved into the warehouse once the set was safe to use these Loveland numbers We've talked about You're Going to Love Tomorrow a bit. It's one of your favorites, sung by young Phyllis and young Ben. You know, all these characters in the show have young counterparts that are ghosts that float in and out of the show. They have scenes, and there are also folly girls, ghosts that walk around the theater, inhabiting the theater, haunting the theater. And they are used, again, in the Follies number, sort of in their splendor. They go from black and white to technicolor in in Loveland. Uh, Yeah. You're going to love tomorrow. Love will see us through. Any thoughts you want to give on it that you didn't give before? I think I already did. Yep. Buddy's Blues. You mentioned it earlier. What is Buddy's oh, Blues? Brilliant. What is Buddy's oh. Blues? What's the song? What does it do? What does it talk about? Buddy's Blues. How can I describe it? It's the manifestation of Buddy's low self-esteem. Mm-hmm. As long as you can't stand me, I love you to death. And as soon as you love me, you're worthless to me because I'm not worthy of being loved. Do you know that both of your children have that problem? Your daughter and I once said to each other, if I go on a date with someone and they say, I like you, I, my immediate thought is what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Well, but I don't think she and I are special in that regard. Many people have that problem. I've got those. God, why don't you love me? Oh, you do. I'll see you later. Blues. That long as you ignore me, you're the only thing that matters, feeling that if I'm good enough for you, you're not good enough. And thank you for the present, but what's wrong with it, stuff? Those don't come any closer, because you know how much I love you, feelings. Those tell me that you love me. Oh, you did. I gotta run now, blues. This song is, is you know, it, all of these songs are obviously a heightened version of the of the truth of these characters, the kernel of the truth. And it's, Isn't that what theater is? Sure. Sometimes, well, a song can be anything. Uh, it can be a lie, 
it can be truth, it can be a heightened version of the truth, it can be introspection, it can be a realization. You something just has to be different by the end of the song. Either something changes in the character in the story, we learn something new. It can't just be a statement, you know. And ironically, all these follies numbers are statement numbers, but they're earned because we've done all the work with these characters to know where they're at and what they're about and what their problems are, that these songs are an enjoyable version of that. You know, Buddy's Blues, it's, as you said, Buddy saying, I don't want the woman I should. The woman I love hates me. The guy, the God, why don't you love me? Oh, you do. I see, I'll see you later, Blues. And he has two women, one as Margie, his mistress in like Texas or someplace. And then the other one is Sally. She says that anybody, Buddy, bleh. It's so, it's just good. It's just good wordplay. I like it a great deal. And it's, it's clever. It's very clever. And it's the complete opposite of the following song, which is Losing My Mind, which is the torch song that Sally sings to Ben. You said you loved me or were you just being kind? So do you know, so this song was supposed to be between a duet for Phyllis and Sally. You told me. Uh, it's one of the great torch songs ever. Yes. So basically Sondheim was nervous with the Loveland sequence that with each Follies number, audiences were going to go, oh God, we have another one, now another one, now another one. And he was trying to find ways to consolidate so there weren't going to be too many. So he originally had Losing My Mind as a duet for Sally and Phyllis. And they're in rehearsals and Alexis Smith and Dorothy Collins hear the number. And Alexis Smith sort of pulls him aside and she goes, listen, I'm not really a singer. And this I is, can't sing this. Yeah, she goes, she can. She goes, this is a singer song. Give this to Dorothy. She will nail this. She goes, give me a number where she's like, I don't sing great and I don't dance great, but I have really nice legs and I can move around. So give me a number where I can do that. So he was going to write a number called um, like something, all the, uh, all the boys. Uptown, downtown. downtown. No, no, the world is full of girls and boys, which was going to be Phyllis and Ben were going to sing it together. And the breakdown was going to happen somewhere along there. And then uh, that ended up getting scrapped when they needed Ben to sort of sing on his own, which then led to Phyllis getting uptown downtown, which then got replaced by story of Lucy and Jesse. Uh, last thing about ironic because Lucy and Jesse is the best of those songs. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think everyone has their favorites. I know that Ted Chapin preferred uptown downtown. I prefer Lucy and Jesse. I think it's more exciting. I think it so has, I think it has more heat to it. And you need a song like that following Losing My Mind. I want to say about Losing My Mind one last thing. Um, I would argue this is perhaps the most successful song outside of the show. It's probably covered the most on mm. uh, in cabarets and on different albums and just works so well. As you said, it's one of the great Torch songs. There's a change in the lyric from and to two where she goes, I dim the lights and think about you, spend sleepless nights to think about you. And it go it changes the meaning of the line because one is act is sort of you know filling the days actively and the other one is i don't want to say stalkery but like you know lack of a better term actively stalkery she's she's trying to when you say and think about you it's i'm trying to fill the day up so i think about you the other one is i can't do anything during the day because all i do is think about you does that make sense whereas one is like i'm I'm racking my brain for something to do. So I think about you. The other one is I'm useless. Well, you're, you're, at, you. you're adding intention. Yeah. Instead of 
filling a void. Yes. And that is sort of, I think, Sally in a nutshell. There's a full-throated heartiness about the way that Dorothy Collins sings the song. First of all, it's belted, and it's, I don't know, it's sultry in her key. People try to show off with it. You shouldn't have to show off. Yeah, Story of Lucy and Jesse, you know, as I said, started as Uptown Downtown. In London, they changed it to Abbott underneath. I don't know necessarily why they changed it, other than Diana Rigg, I guess, wasn't much of a dancer. They sometimes will do Abbott underneath if your Phyllis isn't much of a dancer like they did at Paper Mill with D. Hody. But Story of Lucy and Jesse is just the best of the three. And it's a representative number of Phyllis's inner conflict of wanting to connect to her younger self when she had all this en- energy and grit and determination and her older self where she is in control and and uh, has more uh, agency. Uh, I agree with you. I think story of Lucy and Jesse covers more ground. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a little more transparent, whereas the other two are not, uh, and I'm not one to say, Oh, the more obvious song has to be the one, but I don't, I, I, you can connect to story of Lucy and Jesse better with that transparency when you can understand exactly what it's about, what the theme is. And then on top of that, as I just said, on a showbiz level, being a basic bitch, I just like the music in Lucy and Jesse better. I like the the rhythm section of it. I like the chorus backing up. Now, if you see Lucy X, I just think it's good. I wouldn't call it transparency. I'd call it clarity. Clarity. Better word. Better word. Lucy wants to be classy, Jesse wants to be lassy, Lucy and Jesse can only combine. I can tell you someone who would finally feel just fine. Final song of the show is Ben's Live, Laugh, Love. And I was thinking about this while listening to it and reading the script. You know, this They had to find a way to get out of Loveland. And the way they decided to do it was Ben's number was going to be where he has a slip up and he forgets his lyrics which then makes him come crashing out of Loveland into back into the real world and sort of his walls are down, his defenses are down, he's back to his base, basic human self, whatever that might be, and is able to sort of rebuild from there. Do you know why I think it's so brilliant that Ben forgets his lyrics and the others don't? Why? Because this song actually is fully a lie. In the way that in Buddy's eyes, in my opinion, is half a lie. Sally is lying to herself, but the song itself is true. Live, Laugh, Love is a lie that the audience is fully aware of. And Ben, he forgets his lyrics because to him, this song is a song where he has to memorize lyrics. The other three don't forget their lyrics because they're singing a truth about themselves. They don't have lyrics to memorize. It's a theatrical version of their truth, but it's their truth. Live, Laugh, Love is not Ben's truth, which is why he forgets the lyrics. He had lyrics that could be forgotten. 
did Sondheim say this or did you make this up? I just made this up. I was wondering where you were pulling this from. Myself, my own butt. I, w- I would love you to pose that to Sondheim and see what he says. I'm sure he would agree with me. I'm wondering if you thought of it before he did. I mean, he's been living with the show for 50 years. I'm sure that he, it's crossed his mind once or twice. Gone, oh yeah, I did do a good thing there. Why did Ben forget the lyrics? I would love to hear that posed to Sondheim and have him answer. I think my answer is perfect. And thank well, you very pro- much. Probably better than his answer. Yeah, he's a pretty eloquent dude. I will say Sondheim is someone who, while he is brilliant and he has a great insight into his shows, there are times when I do disagree with him. Uh, About what he meant? And what he did and the quality of it. He's very hard on his lyrics for West Side Story. And as he heads further into the Prince realm of musicals, the Hell Prince realm of musicals, he gets a lot more caught up in the logistics of a character, what they would actually say or do. And he sometimes will forget about the theatrical reality of something. That's why he had Michael Bennett. Michael Bennett, why he had Jerome Robbins and West Side Story and Gypsy. These men who knew what a show needed. You can, and the the brilliance is finding the balance, what is realistic and then what is theatrically needed. And sometimes Sondheim in this era will get too caught up with Hal Prince about what is realistic and not what's theatrically needed. So that's why Ben forgot his lyrics. Sure, that's why Ben forgot his lyrics. There's- But Phyllis takes him home anyway. Phyllis takes him home. She says, let's go home. They're- and Sally and Buddy go back to Phoenix and people go, well, that's depressing. Every, you know, nothing's changed. They're still miserable, which is to completely neglect everything that just happened in the, in the follies. But in there's the love been band. a purge. Yeah. And a catharsis. Exactly. They got, sorts. they are able to let go of the past a bit and not have it define their present anymore, or at least not as much as it was before in a way that it kind of keeps them captive. And there's some acceptance. Yeah. Like, yes, this is where we're at. Yeah. And, you know, we're going to cope with, you know, the hopeful view of the ending is, yes, we understand where we are and we'll try to come to grips with it going forward. Yeah. That I made it through all of delusional, but it's. I made yeah. it all through all of last year and I'm here. So Follies opens. Uh, April 4th, 1971, the reviews are truly all over the place. Clive Barnes, the New York Times says, it carries nostalgia to where sentiment finally engulfs it into its uh, sickly saw. It is stylish, innovative with the best lyrics I have ever encountered, but Sondheim is a heart in search of a Rogers. There are many good things here, but and I enjoyed it more than company, but Barnes does not really like it. Walter Kerr says, yes, 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 Alexis. No, 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 Follies. It's intermissionless and exhausting. What's ironic is Sondheim and Prince always talk about how Clive Barnes was their biggest obstacle in the 70s. And the truth is that after Follies, he becomes a champion with a little night music onward. He actually becomes a big champion of their stuff. Walter Kerr never likes a Sondheim Prince musical. He begrudgingly likes a little night music, but he doesn't find it very captivating. He just says it's well-made, but the sort of talk goes into memory. Their memory is that Barnes was the obstacle. They never really talk about Walter Kerr. Barnes is the New York times. He's so the, was Walter he's, Kerr. He, he's the ball. Yeah. But Clive Barnes was the, a 
critic for the Times, and he was seen as the ball game. Yeah, it's just I don't know. I find it very ironic, especially when you read the review for Fox. Kerr was which, a better critic. Kerr was a better writer. I don't think Kerr was a better critic. Kerr had a reluctance to anything new and groundbreaking. He That's didn't. True. He liked old fashioned. Barnes was actually the opposite. Barnes was really gun ho about how rock music was where musical theater needed to go if it wanted to stay relevant. And he was right because for a while, Broadway wasn't relevant because they couldn't adapt to this changing genres of music. Which leads us to the Tony Awards goodbye, of this year. Goodbye, 174th Street. That's where that leads us. It had, well, it leads us to the Tony Awards of this year because Follies is a big winner. It wins seven Tonys, but it does not win the big one. It loses Best Musical. Do you know what it loses to? No. Two Gentlemen of Verona. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. A rock adaptation of the Shakespeare play by John Guar and Galt Gar- uh, McDermott, who wrote the music to Hair, done at yes. the public. Big hit. This show ran for a while, made a lot of money, had multiple national tours, and then by the end of the 70s, it's promptly forgotten. Didn't pay any of the cast. It was cheap. Very cheap. But audiences liked it. And, yes. you know, it was this big, I don't want to say scandal, but it was sort of in the same way that Anyone Can Whistle in 64 did not get a best score nomination and instead goes to hello dolly funny girl and high spirits you know the play based off of blight spirit it was the tony awards going we will accept your groundbreakingness to an extent but we also want to show you that this is the stuff we still actually like we like the crowd pleasing two gentlemen of verona i never Um, saw two gentlemen of verona that was a, a time when i didn't see a lot of theater well you were in school you were busy you saw company, and that's important. Well, you're right. It was a dark period. And Chorus Line was a breakout, not just that it was successful, but it, it, it was a modernization. Yes. A Chorus Line, Michael Bennett basically took everything he learned from Sondheim and Prince working on their musicals and applied it to a Chorus Line and said, I'm going to do everything that they were doing, but I'm going to do it in a way that audiences will like it and want to come back to it. I don't want to alienate the audience. I want them to enjoy the theater. And he does that. He creates a show like a chorus line that takes place in this sort of nothing space. It deals with memory. It goes all over the place. It's realistic and and impressionistic at the same time. And it's modern and it's new. And it deals with subject matter that isn't often discussed, but he does it in a way that is commercial. And there's a little bit of resentment from his peers for it, but that's for another episode. Follies is not done again until the 80s, at least in New York, at Avery Fisher Hall in the concert that we discussed. And that concert and that concert was done to officially record the score because the original cast album is yeah, heavily a, truncated. Yes, it's a disgrace the, uh, the way that that cast recording was recorded. And they decide we want to record as much of the score as we can, more so than ever was recorded. They bring, you know, Barbara Cook is Sally, George Hearn is Ben, Lee Remick is Phyllis, Carol Burnett does I'm Still Here. And it renews interest in the show and especially in the score. And it gets done in London two years later in a heavily revised version, which I sent you some clips to. Yes, I watched. They cut The Road You Didn't Take 
they they do um uh whatchamacallit they do abbott underneath instead of i'm still here they cut up uh level cs3 and you're gonna love tomorrow into two separate numbers so they don't overlap they give ben a new number they give it a more happy ending Cameron McIntosh felt that the original was too focused on Ben and wanted to make it more even. And what's what's terrible is that it was well-received in London. It ran for two years. It won the Olivier. But also, nobody does that version anymore. They do what's closer to the original. I don't see how you do that show without the road you take. I mean, it's... Well, so, okay. Barreling through the rest. Follies is then done... At Paper Mill with Donna McKechnie, D. Hody, Lawrence Guitard was going to transfer, but James Goldman's widow wouldn't grant them the rights. She had given the rights to Roundabout, who do it in 2001 with a British director. It's you, This was your first live production of Follies, the Roundabout one. I think it was at the Lyceum. Blasco, but similar, well, as, well, similar aesthetic. Of, yeah. The east side of Broadway. Yes, and the south side of the street. Yes. It's, it was raining that night. Belasco, ate dinner across the street. No, I think both of them are on the north side of the street. But oh yeah, north side. And we ate at a restaurant across the street, and it was raining. And for some reason, I'm thinking Nanny was with us that night. She might have been. It follies gets done again in encores a few years later, which we discussed for a second. That had talks of a transfer, which didn't happen. We finally have another revival, 2011, with a full blown orchestra. It's the most elaborate follies I think New York's going to see for a while. And they do it at the National, which we both watched the broadcast of, which is more uh, closely resembling the original. I was surprised by how good the Phyllis was of that, because she's not really a singer. She isn't. And they also but had... She, she did fine. She did fine. I didn't like that they added young Phyllis to Story of Lucy and Jesse. It robbed that Phyllis of her moment. What I find problematic with these later iterations is that they all kind of then contribute to a foundation that is disruptive of follies the avery fisher hall concert while it gets people interested in the show it then presents these musical uh what's what we're looking for these uh these musical demands i guess for lack of a better word on actors in these parts that i don't think is really there george hearn sings ben in the avery fisher hall concert and now we cast George Hearn types as Ben instead of George uh, John McMartin types. And I don't think that's correct. We don't cast, we, we start casting these booming baritones who are much more of a hearty and heavy presence on stage. Uh, you know my position on this. Yes. Ben has to look like Ben. He looks like he went to prep school and Princeton. Maybe he did and maybe he didn't, but that's what he looks like. Ben is not a man. At least in my mind. Ben is not a man. Ben is a boy who aged. That's all. And I think that... You're telling me he's what we all wish we were. No, you don't want to be that. (laughs) You don't want to be that at all. When I say that, like, physically, I don't mean, oh, he looks great for his age. I mean, he's not supposed to look like this put-together men of men. He's... Again, he's a boy in men's clothing. He, someone dre- uh, almost like he's in a costume of sorts. And Sally, you know, kind of also has to look like she's trying too hard. Sally doesn't have to look 
know uh decrepit or stunning she just has to kind of look like she's pushing and too Sally's often, pretty and slightly overweight she doesn't even have to be overweight she just has to be pushing too hard there's she a, thinks that she's overweight yes she thinks she's overweight she says so but you know she talks about her bleached hair and whatnot and there are elements of truth to that a woman who is doing so much to remain youthful instead of someone like phyllis who sort of leaned into the benefits of older age and has and has reaped those benefits and and has the cash to back it up yes has the resources to make sure that she still looks good but vocally speaking you know we then have barbara cook's aiming for things like Sally, which are these more operatic tones. And Sally is not a big, bright soprano. Dorothy Collins is an alto who has these nice soprano notes. And there's a thrill to hearing her chest voice open up to express this operatic soprano in Too Many Mornings. Whereas when you have someone like Barbara Cook, who is one of the greatest singing voices of all time, she just lives there and it becomes more of a concert, which again, to be fair to her, she literally was performing in a concert. That's what she does. But we put that expectation then on later Sally's, and I don't think that's necessarily fair. I don't think that's where that should necessarily go. The other thing is that later productions of Follies try to make the show more realistic and more more coherent, and I don't think that's correct. Follies is an expression that takes place everywhere and nowhere at any time and no time. It's an impressionistic painting. I talked about this with uh, West Side Story and all these other things. It's an impression of a time, an impression of a moment, And the more realistic you try to make it, the more it just sort of plods along. It has to flow almost like a nightmare and create this sense of anything can happen at any time and not knowing where the next thing's popping up or who's talking when. And too many productions, and the last revival I thought did this with its design, it created a very realistic theater. And that's not really what it is. It's a symbol of a theater. It's the skeleton of one. Well... You're referring to the ethereal nature of the piece, and it's that's very hard to make play. It's hard, but what I'm saying is that people don't try. They go the other route, which I think is a mistake. It's less artistic and more accessible. To go more realistic? No. Uh, yes. To go, more realistic is less artistic and more accessible. There's this feeling where people think realism equates to quality. Uh, you know, I'm not at, equating it to quality. I'm equating it to uh, accessible to the audience. But I'm saying, I think what makes it accessible to an audience is that audiences have now equated that with quality. And you can see that with all the Oscar Beatty movies of what's the grittiest, what's the most uh, tough to watch kind of things. And I don't think that's necessarily fair. And Follies is a show where it thrives on the non-realistic of embracing the theatricality or the possibilities of theatricality. And I, what you're describing is, I understand it's very hard to pull off. I'm not saying it's easy, which makes Follies a very hard show to do, but so is Carousel. But when you connect to it, when you can click into it, it's one of the most amazing nights of theater you can have. That said, they're very delicate shows. I don't think Follies is Sondheim's best show. I think when done well, it can be one of the most exceptional nights of theater you have. The problem is it's so hard to do well. Father, rapid fire questions, then we're calling it a day. 
What's your favorite, uh, the Sondheim rhyme? What is your favorite lyric in the show? Been called a pinko kami tool, got through its stinko by my pool. Good one. I had a dream cast. Who would you like to see in a production of this? A combination of the concert and the original. Mm. I'd like to see John McMartin, mm-hmm. Lee Remick, Victoria Clark. How did you like Victoria Clark in L.A.? Just, I mean, it was perfect. Where does this uh, show rank for you in the Sondheim canon? The top. Would you say this one. is your favorite? favorite oh, song? yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Last question. Because Sondheim tends to come back in pared down versions, people playing instruments all in one set, things like that. Mm-hmm. What's the most wild idea you have to make Follies as small as possible? How would you strip it down to so it could be produced as cheap as possible? Wildest idea. Lose all the young characters. How would you do the flashbacks then? You didn't ask me how I would do it. You asked me for my wildest idea. Cut all the young characters, all the young people. Okay. I like it. It all takes place in an insane asylum and they're all mirroring their current selves. And let the old people sing the young parts too. Love it. I love it very much. Uh, Papa, this has been a pleasure. Thank you for taking your sweet time with me on this. You, you will require substantial editing on this one. We'll see. We'll see. I might just make it go as long as it does to punish everybody. <laughs> I'd ask where people can find you on social media, but you don't have social media and you never will. And it's one of the things I love about you. Um, and also, I don't think you want people to find you. Uh, I'm on Facebook. Yes, you I are. never, I never post. That's true. I, occa- I occasionally like, or occasionally comment, mm-hmm. but I, I pretty much don't post. And the people who I want to know my opinion or what I think find out without me doing anything. The whole world doesn't have to know what I think. No, the whole world doesn't have to know. But like the tri-state area could. They don't care any more than they do in Bangladesh. You don't know. I'm pretty sure. After this episode, maybe. Okay. Love you, Matthew. <laughs> wait, I love you. Wait, wait before you peace out, uh, we have to figure out a, a diva to close this out with. I think because we've spoken so highly of her already, we're going to close out with Miss Dorothy Collins. Thank you so much, Dad, for recording with me. If you liked this episode, if you like the podcast, give it five stars, uh, review us, subscribe to us, tell your friends. Uh, join us next week as we continue the Sondheim Prince legacy with the next Tony-winning Sondheim musical, A Little Night Music. And thank you, Papa, and thank you, everybody. Have a good week. Bye! I remember every little thing you used to do. I'm so lonely. Every road I walk along, I've walked along with you. No wonder I am lonely. The sky is blue. The night is cold, the moon is new, but love is old. And while I'm waiting here, this heart of mine is singing, love will come back to me. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. 
Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. They'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. 